Uh, Jacob, as we left him, has had quite a night. He has uh, messengers telling him that his estranged brother Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. And Jacob believes that Esau's intent with these 400 men is for vengeance. He has split up his traveling party into two groups to try to prepare for this attack, determining that in Esau attacks one of them that would allow for the other group to be able to get away. Jacob has prayed to God for rescue from the hand of his brother and God's answer to this prayer was to have a wrestling match with him all night until he had his hip taken out of socket. And then he uh, comes out of that and realizes that he has wrestled with God. And in the midst of that, Jacob is told that you have struggled with God and with people and have prevailed. In short, God telling Jacob, your whole life has been a struggle against God and against people. And yet, in spite of that, God has given you victory. God has been with you every step of the way. So much has now God been with Jacob that now God offers the name change. No longer will you be called swindler, cheater, foot catcher. Your new name is going to be Struggles with God. Israel will be his new name. And so now in chapter 33 of Genesis, morning has come. Jacob is limping from the struggle and he looks up and he sees that now Esau is here with his 400 men. So we're going to look at in chapter 33 is... Not only what is going to happen for Jacob and his family, but more important, what is God teaching through this encounter? Why is this put here? Why does this encounter between Jacob and Esau exist? And what is God trying to teach not only Jacob, but also us as we strive to live for God? You have your Bibles. It will be in Genesis chapter 33. And notice in verse 1 of Genesis, verse 1 of chapter 33, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men were with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. I want you to notice the first picture that's given to us as uh, Jacob now sees his brother that he has not seen since he has swindled him of his birthright and blessing. And Jacob's approach to Esau, I think, is very important that you'll notice that Esau begin or Jacob begins to approach Esau by bowing. Just visualize it says you can imagine here's Esau in the distance coming closer and closer. And as Jacob gets closer and closer, he keeps bowing down on the ground and he's able to pull it off seven times until finally Esau now stands in front of him. Can you imagine what your heart would be doing in that moment and what your stomach would be feeling in that moment and how your throat was probably a little tight in that moment? You are now eye to eye 20 years later 
with the brother that you have seemingly ruined because you have swindled him. I want you to notice what happens in verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, putting his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. Let's just take that in for a minute. <laughs> and don't, don't fly by that scene. Here is Jacob so nervous about this scene and Esau comes up and hugs him and is cry, they're crying together and just imagine what a scene this is at, at, at this moment. In verse 5, it says, When Esau lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise with her children drew near and they bowed down. And at last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. I want you to just kind of uh, appreciate the scene as it's uh, unfolding that not only do you see uh, a position of humility here as, as Jacob is encountering Esau and bowing down, but what Jacob says to Esau, I think is also extremely useful. I want you to notice in verse five, when Esau asked, so what is all this? <laughs> what, who are all of these people? I see all these children and these servants and these women. Who are all of the, these people? And I think it is useful to notice that Jacob doesn't say to Esau, well, you know, I've made an awful lot of my life. You know, I've, I've made some really good decisions. I've been pretty, pretty smooth in my business transactions, been able to do pretty well for myself. And that's why I have this great family and I have all this wealth that you've seen. I'm, I'm doing really great. I want you to notice that he doesn't take credit for any of it. All that he tells Esau is, this is what God has given me. Now, all of this is simply from the hand of God. It's not because I have some kind of advantage or not because I was able to pull one over on you or because I was so smart or witty or intelligent or any of those things. It's not by his own ability, but he continues to emphasize how these things have been graciously given to me. And you will notice that he even ends the sentence in verse five. He doesn't say the children whom God has graciously given me, but he says graciously given your servant. He is absolutely humbling himself before Esau. And I want us to see that this is a really important picture as this begins. I can only imagine this would have gone a completely different way if Jacob has a whole different spiel to give to Esau after 20 years of their estrangement. But rather than doing that, you see a great humility that is coming out of Jacob that he's bowing before him. Everybody with him and his entourage is bowing before him. He's telling Esau, it's not about me. It's simply about God. All that I have is because God has graciously given it to me. And he doesn't even express his superiority, even though he had received the blessing, which said he would be greater than his brother. He actually reverses it and says, I'm your servant. So I want us to see that that is the beginnings of any kind of reconciliation. It is humility. And the reason why humility 
must be the first step is because it's the only way that we would ever admit that we are wrong. It's the only way we would ever be able to say we are sorry. And it would be the only way that we would be able to make things right. There is no way to bring about a reconciliation if there's not humility in that process. An attempt of reconciliation without humility says, well, I'm right. I have nothing to apologize for. I have no reason to care for you. And I want you to see that Jacob is not in that position here. And I I think that's a, a really big change in Jacob's life. Jacob, 20 years ago, was willing to take anything he could from this man. And now he comes before him and he's saying, it's all because of God. And he's humbly giving himself before him. Humility is the first step toward reconciliation. But I want you to notice what else Jacob does here. If you'll notice in verse 8, Esau now asks, what do you mean by all of this company that I met? You have to... First of all, who are all these people? Well, these are, this is what God has graciously given me. Here's my family. And now Esau asks, what was going on with all of the different waves of goats and animals? You, you kept sending me wave after wave after wave of all of these gifts and animals. What was the point of that? What's the meaning of that? That's what, what Esau is asking right here. Why did you do that? Verse 8. And Jacob answers, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And notice we're not talking about God. He's talking about Esau. He's again humbling himself. He's elevating Esau. He's telling him what I'm trying to do is ultimately make things right. And notice how this plays out. Not only is he saying, I'm trying to find favor in your your sight, but in verse 9, You'll notice Esau says, I have enough. I'm good. I'm satisfied. I don't need all of those things. And I want you to notice that after Esau says in verse 9, keep what you have for yourself. Jacob doesn't say, oh, okay. Look at verse 10. Jacob says, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight... Then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. All right, let's talk about how that unfolds. Second of all, I I want you to see a, a heart of Jacob here that he's trying to do everything that he possibly can to make things right with Esau. Even though Esau's refusing, Esau's saying, you keep your stuff, that's fine, I'm good, I'm satisfied, I have enough, I don't need your things. And Jacob will have nothing to do with it. He's saying, no, no, you have to take it. You, have, you can see that there is a heart of restitution that is going on here. And I want you to see that that's exposed in a couple of ways. First, the way we see this is in verse 10 when it says, he says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. And some people read that and go, oh, well, he's just, you know, schmoozing away and all that. I don't believe that's what he's doing. 
To say to Esau, to see your face is like seeing the face of God, is a reference to what has just happened in the prior chapter. Remember, Jacob has wrestled with God. And after he prevails, and I'll put that in air quotes for a moment, because remember we talked about why did he prevail, because obviously God allowed him to prevail. But after he prevails, remember what Jacob says. I have seen the face of God and basically, and I'm still alive to tell it. I've been delivered. I've been allowed to have this moment. And what Jacob, I believe, is doing here is now relating that to Esau because that whole wrestling scene began because Jacob was afraid of what was going to happen with Esau. So he's praying to God, God, you said you would be with me and you'd protect me and you'd help me. And this whole wrestling match was a symbol of how God was going to deliver him. And so Jacob comes out of that wrestling match. I've seen God's face. And now seeing Esau's face is an understanding that God has delivered him again, just as he said. Because right now, Jacob didn't think he'd still be breathing. He thought once Esau, with 400 men, got to his face, he's done. He's terrified. He's scattered people all over the place out of fear. And he's saying, listen, you take the gift because the best thing that I can have is to see that God has delivered me again and has allowed me this moment to see your face. It is exactly like seeing the face of God because this is the fulfillment of the word of God. And the second thing that shows this picture of restitution is there in verse 11. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Now, it's unfortunate to me that a lot of translations go with it. Please accept my present or please accept my gift. And he's certainly giving a gift and a present. But it is the exact same Hebrew word from back in Genesis 27, 35 and 36 when Esau says that he took his blessing Same word right there. And what I don't think Jacob is saying is, here, please take my gift. Yes, that's the idea of sorts, but it's much deeper than that. Jacob's saying, I took your blessing. You take my blessing. Here, because Esau's asking, what's with the whole entourage? Why all the stuff? Why all the goats and animals and why this whole thing? You take my blessing. I know I took your blessing. And now I insist that you take my blessing. In fact, you see that with Jacob because Esau continues to decline. But you will notice at the end of verse 11, as he keeps urging him and pressing him, notice the wording, he took it. And so you have this attempt of Jacob to do whatever he can possibly do for Esau to make things right. Now, I think it is important to note, obviously, he can't make everything right, can he? You can't undo what has been done, but he can sure go a long way to make restitution. And friends, this is such a critical component of true sorrow and true repentance. True repentance tries to do as much as possible 
to right the wrong, to try to undo the evil that has been done. Uh, True repentance doesn't say, well, I know I took your blessing. Hope we're cool with that now. (laughs) I want you to see that's not Jacob's perspective. Jacob is not dismissive. He doesn't come up to to Esau and say, well, you know, it's it's water under the bridge. Life happens. Ah, we were so much younger, foolish, immature, you know, young guys that we were. We're so much older now. It's very real to him. And even though 20 years has gone by, he's doing everything he can for restitution. He's doing everything he can for reconciliation. Jacob is not at all dismissive about his past actions. And I think it's amazing the wording that he doesn't try to hide this, but says it directly to Esau. You should take my blessing. Parenthesis. I took yours. And you need to take it back. And I'm trying to give those things back to you. For how much I have wronged you, how much I have taken from you, I want to give you the benefits of these blessings. And I think that is such a beautiful picture that is given to us. It is a beautiful picture of how Jacob handles the circumstance. And the way that he handles that goes such a long way for reconciliation. This effort of restitution is a very big deal. Um, I remember the time that um, the, the individual who had committed sexual immorality with my mother, which then ended, thought, set the whole stream of events for divorce, all that kind of stuff. I think that was going to be 11 years later. I got a letter in the mail from that fellow. And the letter basically said something to the effect of, well, you know, life happens. And bad stuff takes place. And, you know, I was able to at least get my family back together again. And that was about the thrust of the letter. And I remember taking that letter and putting it in my circular file, i.e. the trash can, and thinking, you have no idea what you're saying. Can you imagine Jacob going up to Esau and saying, well, you know, things happen. (laughs) Well, we were young. Well, it was a mistake. There is such power in attempting restitution, in honestly going to someone and saying, I own what I did, and I know I can't fix it, but let me try to do something. That's what Jacob's doing right here. Jacob's saying, I can't fix that, but let me give you my blessing. Take my blessing. You you take this, because I understand the wrong that I've committed. And I think it's a beautiful picture. It is a wonderful picture of how Jacob insists on this. And I want for you to see it again in verse 11. Even though Esau says, no, 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 no. Jacob says, it ain't happening until I give it to you. (laughs) You're going to take this. You have to take this blessing until finally then Esau takes this blessing.
Final picture now, verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob's journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the place, to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan on the way from Padam Aram. He camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money from of the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. All right, a lot to talk about in the uh, in the in this final scene. One of the things that I think is amazing is what Jacob presumed was going to be a fight and a struggle and a terrible outcome is the brothers able to reconcile and separate in peace. It's a beautiful ending to the scene of what has happened over these 20 years in this separation, that they can come together and have this discussion. I think it is interesting that Jacob does not go with Esau back to Edom and go to Seir. And I think there's a, a couple of reasons for that. One, God has told him now it's time to go back to Canaan. It is time to go back to his, his father's homeland. And I think there's, a, there's, there's that very purpose in it. it sometimes as, as you read this, you kind of wonder what Jacob is saying here in verses 12 through 20. And it's kind of hard to determine. Is, is Jacob saying, oh yeah, I'll catch up with you later. And he's lying to him at, right to his face and he's really not going to do that. That is possible. It, it may be that that's exactly what he's doing. The reason I'm not so sure about that is it seems from verses 15 and 16 that Esau understands what Jacob is saying. You know, Jacob go, Esau goes, all right, well, let's, let's, let's come back to my place. And Jacob goes, well, if I ride them that hard with your 400 men on these horses, they're not going to make it. We're going to be so slow. You know, there's no way for us to be able to do that. So you just go on ahead and don't worry about us. And Esau goes, well, let me leave you some people. Oh, no, no, no. You don't need to do that. You just will be fine and, and we'll, we'll catch up with you some other time. That might be more the idea of what's happening. It's something similar to conversations that we often have with one another. And we say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll come over sometime and we'll get together and do this kind of, oh, yeah, that sounds great. We'll definitely do that. And you don't mean right here, right now, but eventually down the road, one, one of those days. I think you can look at this text in either, either light. But the bigger idea here is that their reconciliation doesn't mean that now he's going to have to go live in Edom. They're going to be best buds forever. <laughs> I think there is something amazing and something precious in the ability for them to reconcile. And that reconciliation means that this problem 
that was in the relationship has now been solved. And that's clear that they have settled that. Lord willing, in a few lessons, we'll get to see that they will interact with each other one more time, vaguely, and it seems like everything is fine. And I think that's a great thing to see here is that reconciliation doesn't mean we have to hang out every night, (laughs) but it does mean that we've solved the problem, that we have healed the relationship, that the bridge has been rebuilt. And that's what you see with Jacob and Esau is that they are able to accept one another, have that brother relationship again, and solve the thing that was inflicting a, a wound uh, between them in that difficulty. I want you to see one other thing, though, that's, that's even more important, though, than the reconciliation. Is what happens there in verse 20. It is easy to read verse 20 and kind of sign off in this chapter and read, well, he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. But when you have a little footnote in your Bible, it will tell you that the meaning of this is God, the God of Israel. Now, that's a really big statement of what Jacob is doing here at this moment in naming the altar with that name, because what Jacob is doing now is he's accepting the name change. Remember that God has said, I will no longer call you swindler. You're now going to be the one who struggles with God. Your name now is Israel. But remember, up to this point, we have not seen Jacob adopt God as his God. He has always been the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He has never said, that's my God. Until now. He calls the altar the God, the God of Israel. Remember, there isn't an Israel yet, except for him. His name is now Israel. He's now accepting God as His God. God has carried him through. He has brought about this reconciliation. He has caused this now to be set so that Jacob can now fully go back to the promised land, go back to the homeland and become the father of the nations and the father of Israel and set in motion the promises of God because he's taken care of this moment. So what I want to do is take just three quick thoughts about what we see in in this section, looking at it from three perspectives, Jacob's perspective, Esau's perspective, and God's perspective in terms of thinking about reconciliation and restitution and the humility in that. Number one, we've already talked about it, but as a quick reminder, with Jacob, what he does is so important. And he really shows the heart of humility that is needed to make reconciliation happen. You see the heart of restitution. He wants to right the wrong. He wants to give Esau the blessing. He wants to call him his Lord. He calls himself his servant. He's saying, here, take the gifts. And just seeing you and being able to reconcile is like seeing the face of God. This has been all that Jacob wants and the humility to approach those kinds of relationships where we have those differences, where we have those problems, where there is that friction 
look at the life of Jacob and look at this transformation that he has as a means by which to work toward reconciliation with others. I want you to think about Esau, though. I think Esau is really interesting. I'd love to do a whole, let's think about Esau. I only got a minute here, but there's a lot of things Esau could have said when Jacob came to him. When you have Jacob come up and in verse three, bowing down before him, and it says there that Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and they wept. That says a lot about Esau. It says a lot about Esau when Esau asks, you know, who are all these people and what's going on here? And and Jacob is just deferential. It's all because of God. That you don't hear Esau say something to the effect of, you know, you ruined my life. (laughs) You know, you destroyed everything. 20 years have gone by. He was in line to receive the blessing. Think of all the terrible things that Esau could have said to Jacob in this moment. You destroyed everything. You made a mess. You're a disaster. You're an awful person. And I want us to notice that what Esau says to Jacob is simply, I've been taken care of too. He doesn't name God, but he says, I'm satisfied. I have enough. I have what I need. I think the parenthesis is God has taken care of me just as much as he's taken care of you. And I think that is so important on the other side of being wronged. Here is Jacob who has wronged. He comes in humility. Here is Esau. He's not looking at, hey, you ruined my life. I'm going to try to get everything out of you and make you pay. He instead is able to see that his life has been blessed by God in spite of what has happened to him. And he doesn't take it out on him. He doesn't do the things that Jacob thinks he would do in that moment. Which all leads to this really important point. God worked in both of their lives so that they could see that God had strongly worked in their lives. And I think that is a critical component of reconciliation. Is that you can be wronged. And you can be wronged severely. And it forever changed your life. It certainly forever changed Esau's life. And still be able to say, I've seen how God's taken care of me. And it's okay. And I don't need you to give me what you're trying to give me. We'll just hug it out and cry. Like they did. Friends, we can let go. And we see God's good hand in our lives. We have the ability to let go of the hurt, the pain, and the anxiety when we look and see that the hand of God has been with us the whole time. We can let it go when we humble ourselves. I don't suppose anybody could raise their hand and say, I've never hurt anybody else. Everybody's always hurt me. I've never wronged anybody else. Everybody's always wronged me. I've never said anything wrong to somebody else. They've always said wrong things to me. 
May humble ourselves and remind ourselves that we are just as much in need of all of God's grace as the person who's wronged us. We humble ourselves at that moment and seeing their need for God's grace and seeing our need for God's grace allows us to let the hurt go. We live in a time right now that very much capitalizes on how your past should be allowed to wreck your future. And I would hope that we see that the gospel gives us hope that with God, you don't have to let all the things that have happened to you in your past wreck your future. You can find healing with God. You can find reconciliation with others. And you can let go of the pain because you can see God's good hand in your life. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would see both of the perspectives of these two brothers. And Lord, I pray that we would have the humility like we see in Jacob. That when we have done wrong and harmed others and said or done things that we should not have done. That we would have the humility to accept our wrongs. And to do all we can to make restitution. Lord, I pray that you would give us that heart to try to right wrongs. Give us a heart to try to fix the things that we've done. And Lord, we know we can't fix everything that we've done, but give us a heart to try to do what we can to be able to reconcile with those who we've hurt and to make peace. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a perspective like Esau to see that no matter what we've experienced and no matter what we've lost, no matter how much our life has changed and its trajectory gone a completely different way, that we can see your good hand. We can see that how you've taken care of us, how you helped us through, how you brought us a new way. So Lord, I pray that when we are in places of hurt and times that we've been wronged, that we would see your hand We would see how you've carried us through and how you will continue to carry us through so that we can be gracious and merciful and forgiving people as you've called us to be. Lord, thank you for how you work in our lives, whether we are the offender or the offended, how you continue to be with us and move us in the right path, transforming us into your image. Forgive us for when we have failed to let things go. Forgive us for when we haven't moved forward with you. Forgive us when we haven't been merciful, forgiving people. And Lord, we pray that we would do far better at reconciling relationships as we go forward from your teaching, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing the invitation song, and we invite you tonight to come to Jesus and to see the, the hope and reconciliation and restoration that God offers you. It's amazing to think about that
God uses all of these things for us to bring us back to him. And then says, I want you to do the same for others. To go about and be a place of healing and hope to other people in the world. So can we help you come to Jesus tonight to turn away from your sins and follow him faithfully with all of your heart? We'd love to help you do that. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?